to Mawale. For the win! You're listening to All In, a women's sports podcast on WFUV Sports. Well, guys, we took a week off due to illness. I will say that. Both, <laughs> I, I had pneumonia. How my, how my doctors described it, a touch of pneumonia along with an upper and re- lower respiratory infection. And Miles had something congestion related, but mm-hmm. didn't go to the doctor. So take with that <laughs> as you back. will. It, it, is Miles Day-cool anti-medicine? Yeah. I think that's a fair question to ask here. <laughs> but anyways... We're both on the up and up, and we're ready to bring back all in. And I'm a little frazzled right now, I'll admit that, <laughs> before we get into sports. And we got a lot to talk about this week, especially with the week off. My favorite, I mean, we work at a radio station that has a music department as well. So sometimes they have live uh, musicians come in and do uh, do performances and do um, interviews. And I walk in with Miles, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I look in because there's a glass that separates the window, the studios, and I'm like, is that the Japanese house? Mind you, that's my favorite. That's like top three of my favorite singers. And shout out Jim (laughs) O'Hara at WFUV for letting me meet her. But I just just walked back into the studio for meeting her. We were supposed to start at 1. It's 118. So I just want to thank the guys here, both Miles and James, for... For waiting around and letting me meet her. No, I was glad to see it. It was the the look on your <laughs> face was was quite fun to see. Yeah, that was priceless. That was so <laughs> worth the wait. Definitely appreciate you guys. Well, we're gonna get right into some women's sports because we've got some Gotham FC to talk about. They upset. Well, I don't know. Upset's a strong Ups- word in the NWSL. Strong, yeah. Six over a three though. Even though like you know the way it shook out on they the very on the last road. day. Yeah. Um, they won, so they're going to the semifinals. First playoff win ever. Um, we're going to talk about that a little later. But first, we're going to talk about the New York Liberty because we haven't had a chance to discuss the season since uh, they got bounced from the finals by one point. And, Miles, I'll throw this to you first. You know, it was a really ugly start. And I can honestly compare this a lot to the U.S. Women's National Team's World Cup exit. Like, they played pretty well at the end but still got eliminated playing, I would argue, like their best basketball we saw throughout the finals, which is that bar low, perhaps. But still, the best basketball we saw um, in, with them in the finals, they, they got eliminated 70 to 69, game five. Yeah, it's safe to say that was their strongest loss out of, out of the losses. I mean, the Aces have played together for, for quite a long time, and I think that's really what, what glared through. The Liberty just haven't had that time to really understand one another. And there's, there's so much talent. I think there's arguably a little bit of a lack of scoring coming off the bench Kayla Thornton is what she is and and Marine is you know a simply unreliable piece off the bench particularly in a finals type of situation and I think that's what the biggest change will be in the offseason how can they sure up that second unit everyone seems to be returning besides John Quell is the only question mark um she wouldn't really 
say much in her exit interviews. It didn't really seem like she wanted to come back in her exit interviews. But also, I think that's a bit of a bit of just a ploy. I, I, I doubt she could find a juicier situation than the New York Liberty coming back and, and having this group together for a second year. And I think she might like that idea to, to be able to chase a ring. But, yeah, I think the you know the, the time together is the, the biggest thing they cleared through. And uh, to kind of circle back to the John Cole Jones situation, and this is something that, you know, if you know the answer to, please answer. Because with the WNBA, the way the salary cap is so low, is is it really about money for – when once you get to a certain point in the WNBA, once you're, like, at that superstar level, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting – upwards of you know the most money you can make in the WNBA which I think I can speak for all of us when I say it's not enough it's like 250,000 exactly um so in my opinion the WNBA is very unique because it really is more about situation than money because the the most of their money is made through endorsements and things like that and there's no better place to get endorsements and and be in that atmosphere and that life than New York City so for you, Jonquil Jones potentially leaving or acting like she's going to leave, is that going to be more of striving for what could be a better situation somewhere else? I don't know where that would be considering there is a super team here. Or am I completely wrong and like there's more money somewhere else? Well, it's safe to say she could not get a max deal in New York. That's yeah. that's that's obvious. She won't get that Arike Gubawale quarter of a million dollars per year type of deal. Um I don't know if she needs that though. Like she, like like you said, she has that State Farm deal. She has various forms of income. She's done it for a while, and I think that she's at the point in her career—not that she's quote unquote ring chasing—but you think that that'd be the priority at this point over a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, she could probably only get in that a hundred and fifty, a hundred and seventy-five range with the New York Liberty. She probably could get in the two hundred range elsewhere. I don't think that matters that much to her. I, I I'd be surprised if it did. I mean. She also have to relocate her family and things like that, and that's not very fun. She just did that, and yeah, I think honestly, I think that she wants to be this free agency process to play out with Jonathan Kolb, and she's gonna have a, a fair share of other suitors, and she's gonna try and get the best deal possible. But I think in the back of her mind, she's thinking, I want to be here in New York. I don't want to go through all that hassle just for this X amount of money. When being in New York is kind of you know when you think about endorsements and things like that really it'd be la new york and maybe las vegas in where a star player like john quell wants to be i i I see i see her ending up back here maybe i'm just being too confident and now we're kind of in a situation here without you know we knew we were going to be talking about at the beginning of the season when they assembled this, this team that they have now and that is how sustainable this can be moving forward and now we're in that phase where we can have that conversation of like are we're going to see all five of these players back next year. And if they're back next year, the year after that. So they go to the finals. And I feel like the the narrative around this New York Liberty team because of their performance in the finals is unfair because, I mean, they did what they were supposed to. They went to the WNBA finals. Did they win a championship? No. But that's because the Las Vegas Aces are the best team in the whole WNBA. Being the second best team in the WNBA when you assembled this team in the offseason – is it's definitely something to be proud of, and this, the narrative around the Liberty, they're they're talking about New York like there's some kind of team of scrubs, mm-hmm. and it's it, I think it's unfair. Yeah, I mean, you know, the expectations come when you have this kind of talent. I think but I feel the, like they met those expectations by making the finals. Ah, uh, and can can I jump in real quick? 
Of you course. said the, the Aces are not only the best team in the WNBA, they were the first team to go back-to-back in, what, 22 years or something? Yeah. Are they not? One of, like, three ever. I was going to say, are they not in the conversation for greatest WNBA, WNBA team ever? Certainly. I think they, they, they're they yeah. near or at the top of that list, right? It's, it's them, apparently, the like the 93 Comet, something like something I'm unaware <laughs> yeah. of, but there's one yeah. other team they're compared to, because that other team did the three-peat. Yeah, I and think that's look, the only thing they have on them. And the, the Liberty loaded up this year, and I would say that they, they hit expectations. To, to expect them to have been immediately better than the Aces is probably a little much, you know? I completely agree, and I wish people on Twitter would think that mm-hmm. way as well, because you would think that this team got... Twitter's not real life. I'm, I'm done with Twitter. <laughs> well, unfortunately... I, I'm open. I have Twitter open right now. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately for the Liberty, it was a pretty depressing showing in the finals. Yeah. And I right. think Sabrina's performance in particular, I think, you know what, I, we've touched on this before, Julie, about why is Sabrina so hated by so many circles. And it's because she's never won at any level, and she's still touted as this, you know, once-in-a-generation player, and she hasn't had enough winning to back that up. This is another case where that was already the trope when it came to Sabrina's career. Now she gets to the WNBA Finals, (laughs) and and she hurls on the sidelines. That's exactly what she couldn't do. Both both literally and metaphorically. (laughs) I mean, she completely gave, you know, all the fuel to that fire that she possibly could. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, yeah, Sabrina, the Sabrina haters are going to have a field day with this finals because she wasn't aggressive enough and, you know, and, and then she looked a little nervous. Apparently she had a bit of a stomach bug. I don't know how much of a mental factor that is when it comes to the, in but the, in the post they game, fell short. Yes. And then in the, in the post season conference, press conference, whatever you want to call it, she exit said that interviews. exit interviews. Yes, that was the word I was looking for. She said like she was nervous. Like she, I mean that. I don't think it was a stomach yeah. bug. She, I mean, she straight up said she was nervous. She, she hinted it for sure. She did not. She, I wouldn't say she said that it was purely mental, but she didn't hint that. Oh, I ate something funny. She, right. It was more. You know, she yeah. She beat around the bush a little bit, but you would assume <laughs> this was a this was a head case situation, which is kind of shocking for a player who you know has never come through in those big moments. It yeah. Gave and, a lot of fuel to that fire. And and I see your computer over here, so I want to set you up to speak your yeah. truth over here. You've got it ready. Looking forward well, to what can make this W and this uh this Liberty team better and more likely to go into a WNBA finals and have more of a shot. Like what does this Liberty team need to do and is there any specific player that you want to see be brought into this New York team? Well, I think in his exit interview, GM Jonathan Cole made it pretty obvious that it's gonna come on the second unit. We're gonna pursue you know, JJ, as much as we can, we want to retain her. Besides that, the core of the superstars is locked in. But where we need to improve is at the top of the second unit, particularly in the scoring department. And, you know, there's a lot of different names you could think of when who's an electric score that could be that off-the-bench number one option for the Liberty. But I think it's someone coming off maternity leave and <laughs> Skylar Diggins-Smith. Um, you know, I don't know if she's a player who would be content coming off the bench. And I think that might be frustrating. I think you might see something where she's an electric scorer. You might have Sloot run the second unit coming in a lot, like, you know, four or five minutes into the game. But as that six man, because Skylar Dingy Smith is that egotistical player that would not come off the bench, genuinely would say, I'm not coming to Liberty if that's going to be my role. Um, but I think she's got the talent and she's what the Liberty are missing in that spark plug, in that another offensive weapon that could, you know, ignite the second unit alongside Thornton and, and Johannes. I don't know if Johannes will be around. It doesn't seem like it just because of her international yeah. schedule. Yeah. But 
they're going to need that bench option, and I think Skylar Diggins-Smith coming off maternity leave could really be that electric piece because, you know, she's as talented as anybody in this league. And, yeah, Johannes has made it clear that uh, she is prioritizing her uh, the Olympics this upcoming summer with the French national team, and she said, you know, if, if I can make it work, I will make it work, but she, <clears throat> she made no promises of any sort of appearance with the New York Liberty, so... As far as I'm concerned, moving forward, I'm not expecting Johannes to be in this lineup. But for me, as far as what the Liberty can do, I think they can do a lot of adding by not adding. Just giving this starting five another year to gel together because they are great players. They made the WNBA finals. I feel like I have to keep mentioning that because I feel like that is getting lost Mm -hmm. within the media. They they were kind of in a tier of their own with the Aces. They did accomplish that in that... It was the Liberty and the Aces and everybody race. else. Yeah, yeah. And which, which was the, the goal. Yeah. Um, so I think they can, I mean, obviously if they can get Skylar Diggins-Smith, if they can get, you know, better bench pieces because I don't see Han coming back. And so it's funny you mention Han. I think it's, it's fair to mention that, you know, in the case of both international kind of fan favorites in Marine and Han, they see the WNBA as a $55,000 check and a training ground for my national team and overseas league. I don't think that, you know, I think we saw it with Han down the stretch, not even being with the team. She'll tell you herself, you know, she's grateful to have this opportunity to be in America and to train with this elite talent. But I don't think they see it as their number one priority priority when it comes to basketball. And, you know, they're also not expecting big roles because there's kind of this mutual understanding. You're talented. We know you're talented. You're not going to be in this big role. We understand we're not your number one priority as the New York Liberty. And, yeah, I don't see Han or Marine ever being impact players as much as they are fan favorites. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. Um, But going back to, you know, if if they can have an offseason – and another year to keep this core, if they bring John Quill Jones back, this is why I think that should be number one priority by and far. Because it, it, what was missing from this team and what makes the Aces so much better than the Liberty specifically in the finals was just the chemistry, the on-court chemistry. And you can't manufacture that in a year. I mean, could they have won the finals be- just from their sheer talent? Sure, but it was never going to look pretty. If you can give them more time just to be that core playing together, I think that is going to do a lot more than trying to focus on shaking a ton of stuff up, which Cole seems to be on the same page of, you know, the focus is going to be on the bench, on the reserves. And yeah, I mean, look, if the even if that doesn't pan out the way that he wants it to and we don't get, or the Liberty don't get some six woman of the year, mm-hmm. I'm okay with that because the Aces didn't need that. Yep. The Liberty don't need that. So, if anything, just follow the Aces' game plan at this point. <laughs> They're just, I mean, you mentioned how, James, you mentioned that, you know, the Aces could be the best team of all time. And I I, I would t- definitely agree. I didn't watch the 93 comments. Yeah. <laughs> can't, say, can't say I've studied up on their tape. But I think that when all is said and done, we're looking five years from now, it's not even going to be a competition. The Aces are going to be. Mm-hmm. But to go towards the, the international talk, because uh, this is something I want I want to bring up, is that, you know, we talked about it before the show, and James mentioned a really good point of, you know, there just aren't as many players going overseas right now. And, you know, I don't know why that could be. Mm-hmm. Is it, could it be, you know, endorsement money? They don't need it. Players aging, because we talked about someone like Courtney Vandersloot. Like, 
does she want to like play year-round basketball when she's you know past i don't want to say past her prime that always feels wrong to say but it's fair at this point definitely closer to mm -hmm. the end of her career than the beginning so james I'll, I'll hand it off to you you know what are your thoughts on just like the trend that's happening within the wnba of players you know just focusing on the w and not you know going to other countries in the offseason well i think that first of all it prioritizes success in the league and i think the reason we're seeing it happen with the Liberty, not only because Courtney Vandersloot, like you mentioned, I don't want to say past her prime either, but <laughs> towards the end, latter half of her career, I think 34, turning 35 at the beginning of next season. So it makes sense for someone like her, but this is becoming a trend around the WNBA because, one, things are improving in terms of conditions for players, which is very much a good thing. They're not nowhere near where they need to be yet. But also for the New York Liberty's case, they see a team that can go back with this core group of players and challenge for a WNBA title again. And I think there's value in keeping players around and not necessarily going overseas and playing for a new team. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there are benefits to doing either, but I think this is probably a step in the right direction, not only for players' health, but for the WNBA and its status as a league, in not only compared to other women's basketball leagues around the world, but as a major American sports league. I think it only helps the cause. Yeah, I think there's a couple things going on here. First of all, the core of superstars we're used to making an impact overseas is just as a whole aging, right? That whole era yeah. of WNBA players is getting a little older, more, yeah, uh, less inclined to go overseas and, and put their bodies on the line. I also think, you know, something we haven't addressed is Brittany Griner. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I, like, I think, you know, they don't want to risk it as much. Most of them Definitely went to Russia. It. Like, that yeah, was, like, that the was big popular. place to go is or Russia. Or China or places China. that might be a little... I don't know. Like Government not, unrest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the United States isn't on great terms. Um, and yeah, you, you might see that a lot. And also, uh, you know, it is more popular to see WNBA players in big time endorsements. Like you saw John Quill on that State Farm commercial with Bovon, right? That was a State Farm. And, I think it was and you know what? I think last year's NCAA tournament had a big deal to do with that because that, that created a big yeah. wave in women's basketball in general and the whole NIL deals. Now you see Angel Reese's in tons of commercials left and right. Yeah. Uh, I think that that tournament being as big as it was down the stretch has not only helped women's basketball, but it's also helped the WNBA and WNBA players to, it, to pursue those things And as well. it's going to have a continuous impact too because Good. you know Angel Reese is a millionaire. When yeah. she starts playing in the WNBA, she's, she's a not going to... She's already a star. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Like, then the next generation of players, because of NIL, are already going to be rich. They're, They're not going overseas when so they come true. back. You'll never see a Caitlin Clark on, yeah. on a Russian team or yeah. a Chinese. That's wow. so funny to That's think crazy. about. It's uh, a big change. Uh, yeah. I think, I think, and you know what? It's for the better because yeah. it was about time these athletes got treated like athletes. Yeah. You know? So. Just, you just got to hope that it kind of has a ripple effect within the WNBA because that money can only last so long. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Angel Reese is going to be fine. Like, years to come because like those endorsements aren't going to just stop when she exits college like she's probably going to get more endorsement deals when she starts becoming a, a WNBA superstar same with Caitlin Clark same mm -hmm. with Haley uh, Van Lith Paige Beckers so what we're starting to see now is only going to be expedited when those NIL athletes make the W and this is a you know I don't know if y'all saw this on Twitter but it went viral on like my women's basketball feed it was about how LSU retweeted something I saw this saying uh comparing Angel Reese's NIL evaluation at 1.7 mil as opposed to Aaliyah Boston's WNBA contract now that is the most ludicrous thing to me it's it's a complete misunderstanding of what yeah. NIL is your NIL doesn't disappear once you turn pro you just have that on top 
top of your salary. It's it's unbelievable that LSU like and I get the, the whole sentiment. The women's basketball official page. Literally their page. <laughs> like I get the sentiment. Oh, we want to keep players in college. We want to show that. Oh, you can be a millionaire in college. But Angel Reese make... would be a millionaire if she left too. Endorsements I don't... don't stop yeah, once you graduate. Exactly. <laughs> it's the most ludicrous thing because people act like NIL is a is a you know factual salary and it's not. But then. You know, in some cases, I guess it's where it gets a little hairy is the whole, you know, there's the NIL collective where a school like a power five school will have their NIL collective. I know Texas, I know Maryland has these has these programs where boosters will come together and literally fund players. I think in the case of LSU, it might be that kind of, you know, NIL collective where it's mm -hmm. like she might literally get stipends from a booster club, which is a. You know, it's a, it's an illegal use of NIL, but I know that's kind of like, hint, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a loophole at this point. I think it happens a lot. So I guess that's where the conversation gets a little hairy. But that just frustrates me so much to act like NIL is a salary. That's not how that works. And if they're going to flex, because there is a way in which you can flex NIL over WNBA, and that's in mm. those NIL collective kind of yeah. arrangements. Don't flex Angel Reese, who's making millions of dollars from outside endorsements yeah. that she's yeah. going to have when, she, if anything, you're just and flexing the fact that she's Reebok now. Like, and yeah, <laughs> and how and how few of these athletes, especially on the women's side, are being paid Angel Reese money so, and the exactly. NIL deal. Every player in the WNBA fingers. is guaranteed <laughs> at least some money from a contract. Yes. Yeah. Only a handful of the best of the best in college sports, uh, both men and women, are getting NIL deals, uh, like let the, alone yeah. over a million dollars. So. And not even to mention the unprofessionalism of tweeting yeah. that yeah, to what begin is with. Like, what is that? If you're if you're an official college women's basketball page, or if you're an official page, this is honestly this could open up a wider conversation too. Because as much as I love fun and jokes, I feel like there's a lot of sports pages, and yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm like not fun and not cool, but I do really feel like we're so strict. We <laughs> we're really like kind of passing that line of social mm -hmm. media we, professionalism we, we on have a little bit. I, I mean, I see, like, tweets a lot, like, I don't want to call out the NWSL, but there are quite a few NWSL teams that, like, if there's two players dating on a team, they'll, like, tweet their ship handle, like, their ship name, and it's, like... It's a little private, little Yeah, I'm like, come maybe. on, guys, like, let's let's reel it in just a little bit, and there's, there's situations like that, not necessarily that exact situation, but just, like, either, like, really towing the line or completely crossing it. I think we're getting a little too comfortable on social media I to where we're injecting opinions on team pages i think i think I've, i'm kind of grown tired of the uh the whole interviewing the players and being like would you like who wouldn't you let date your daughter date your son i'm like <laughs> this is getting a little too much guys if you're posting it on the actual team like, official page I, like, I, I have no problem with you guys having fun i i think social media should ex like explore more content like mm -hmm. that that you get to you know feel the players personalities but maybe maybe don't make it personal romantic stuff like that because yeah. i think that's just not only is it a little like sexist heteronormative in that regard but it's also mm -hmm. like problematic in that mm -hmm. it's just not it's just not necessarily a good look i think i i don't know i'll leave that at that that was just one example but <laughs> I, I, totally I, agree. I totally agree that sports social media admins for the most part it's fine <laughs> are going maybe a little bit too far yeah and i want to stress like for the most part like 98 percent. 98 percent of it's good but then there's, there's a, sometimes i'm on twitter i'm like we all, we all know those instances where it's yes. like too much right, right exactly yeah. but Speaking of NWSL, let's uh, let's move over here a little bit to soccer. James, 
U.S. Women's National Team. We're going to start with the U.S. Women's start National there. Team and then finish with the really good, and that is Gotham <laughs> FC. But we're going to start with, like, the bad and then the good. So, like, I would say, like, medium feeling about the way the U.S. Women's National Team played overall. It is overall. pretty medium. So they had two games against Columbia recently, drew the first game 0-0, won the second game 3-0, and... Um, Definitely a lot to take away from this. We'll start with the first game. That might have been legitimately like kind of like the ugliest game yeah. I've ever seen in my life. And not even because it was like bad soccer. It was just so defensively minded. Columbia is so physical on the ball. And it, it, it really, Columbia puts the referee in a position to dictate how the game is going to go because they will just like social media admins will toe the line. <laughs> Columbia will also toe the line up until they start getting repeated ye- yellow cards and then they'll find that and yeah. then they'll like keep that intensity I, I that it was actually like credit to Colombia who I would say were it wasn't their strongest 11 either mm-hmm. um the US you know for the most part brought a pretty pretty hefty squad of, of of strong players um I I see a front 3 that could have started at the World Cup in Lynn Williams, yep. Trinity Rodman and Alex Morgan and that that was where I was a little disappointed from this one is that it didn't look creative enough in the attacking third same problems we took away, same observations we had going into New Zealand, Australia, same things we take away. I was a little frustrated, and I know we didn't want to talk about the roster in general. No, wait, let's talk about I was roster. frustrated because it was so similar, and I get it. You don't want to reinvent the wheel, you know. Um, but the, I, I, I would have liked to have seen a bigger influx of youth, bigger um, just disproportionate amount of players who we maybe have and haven't seen. And we got that later in the mm-hmm. window, which was good. Um and we didn't learn a lot from that first game against Colombia. Uh, I th- hats off to Colombia though for right. how, how impressive they were at the World Cup. They didn't exactly play that same way. They were super, super physical. I didn't see much from them in the attacking third that really scared the U.S. But that is a terrific result on the road into the U.S. for Colombia. And I know it's a friendly. They play each other twice in a few days. They're bound to figure things out about each other. But as far as first impressions go, I was more impressed by the way Colombia were able to play that game than the U.S. And I know it's okay because it was a friendly, mm-hmm. but peeling it back a little bit, seeing a lot of the same problems, I felt a very Vlatko-coded game in the first one, not so much in the second one. Very different, in the, especially in the second half of the second game. Part of me feels like the reason that is because Twyla Kilgore, the interim coach, doesn't really want to like make any drastic changes before the actual new head coach comes in and they can you know, kind of have their own changes in the roster. I mean, it would be, it, 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 in a way, I, I understand how it can be kind of counterproductive for Twyla to be like, mm-hmm. all right, we're bringing in all these new players. Here's who I like. And then the new head coach comes in and is like, well, I actually don't want those players. And it puts the players in a position to be like, oh, am I making the roster or not? And this is something you can avoid, especially in two friendlies where they're supposed to be a new head coach by the next time they play games. So, um, Oh, that's usually something. I was like, a game today. Oh, yeah, no. Every yeah, time like, I look up women's now, it says the Pan American Games. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, when like, are they playing? Why are they playing Argentina? Argentina. No, yeah, no. It's, okay. it's a youth game. Um, the next time they play friendlies, which is against China in December, there should be a new coach. So these two games were really just, I, I understand the perspective of Twyla being like, we're just going to not make any insane ruffles in this roster because I know the next time we play friendlies, it will not be me at the at the helm and I don't think she I'm not getting the vibe that she super wants it or yeah. maybe she just knows that there's no chance that, that she's going to get that position it's I, you bring up such a good point because it's such a, t- a difficult position to be in particularly as a national team coach in a transitional period 
at the interim level. Yeah. You you just don't have if you don't have the keys to to make these sorts of decisions. And and in that regard, it's my blame goes to the federation. Granted, it's still early there. Four years removed from the next Women's World Cup, so they don't have to solve all these issues right away. Well, it's there's a process. The Olympics. Uh, there is the Olympics. This is this is correct. So I think if you want, and how disappointing the the previous <laughs> Olympics were, oh my God. there is should be maybe some sense of urgency in rectifying the issues at hand. With that said, though, if Twyla Kilgore is not actually in the running. What 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 purpose does she have in bringing in new players that exactly? I, I, it's such a good point, and it's not fair. Not only is it not fair to Twyla Kilgore, and this is my, my I put blame on the U.S. Soccer Federation for this, and and the sporting director Matt Crocker, um, because if she is eventually going to be in the running, give her the keys to bring in some some new players. I and look, if those players maybe don't get brought in later down the line, that's not Twyla Kilgore's fault, but she has to feel that trust from the federation, or. It could be the other thing. She may not be that interested in, in taking the job at all, which is very, very possible. So I, uh, the way I feel right now is we're, we're in a bit of a limbo, and we've continued to be in limbo, but now it's for different reasons where it's we didn't know how good we were with the coach we previously had, not getting the best out of all our best players. Now it's can we get the right players? Can we get new players? Can we integrate these pieces? And under which coach are they going to be able to flourish? Under which system? And I hope that by next month we start to answer at least one of those questions because we didn't answer a single one <laughs> after after this week which is again it's early it's okay but time's ticking you've got a handful of matches before the olympics now let's figure it out and get going i will say one question that i personally had was answered in that second game and that's where i want to move over to the second game and that is you know should we kind of well, I don't know the phrase. I'm not even going to pretend like I was knowing that <laughs> phrase. Should should we commit? That's kind of the boring way to say it. Commit to the players who were on this World Cup roster who may be aging a little bit. Or should we invest in the youth now and, you know, hope that that works out for us in the Olympics? And I think that question was very clearly answered to me in that second match. Yeah. You see someone like Alex Morgan in both matches. Love her. Great, great historically. I personally think she was terrible in these two matches. She was. She couldn't convert anything, missed missed a penalty kick, and then also had essentially three or four penalty kicks, just wide open shots that they either sailed over the bar or just missed frame or right at the keeper. And everywhere besides where you would realistically want your striker to be putting the ball in an open goal situation. But on the other side of that, you have me official and you have Jaden Shaw both coming in and scoring. Me official in the 56th minute to break the even score, and then Jaden Shaw in the 83rd. They both looked incredible. So, for me, do I leave Alex Morgan off this Olympic roster? No, because that's a insane over exaggeration. But I think a better conversation is: Do you have her be a game changer coming off the bench, coming in around the 60th minute when we look at like Olympic? Olympic times. I think um, the torch has been passed from Carly Lloyd to Megan Rapino to now I would say Alex Morgan as the the quote unquote token um, veteran leader of this team. Not that she has no place in this team anymore, but I feel like her role has now diminished a little bit to the point where I don't expect her to carry the burden to shoulder the burden of scoring goals like she has before. She's got over a hundred for her national team. That's unheard of, um, but that those times have passed. Certainly, she's still capable. 
and she will be starting matches for the U.S. Uh, at the Olympics. I think she should be coming off the bench most likely. And I look, I'm always going to be a big fan of her and her career. She's an ambassador of the game unlike any other in the U.S. I would put her on my Mount Rushmore of, of women's soccer icons in the U.S., I think. To have to put her in a top four, I think she has to make that. Um, if not, she's one of the fifth or sixth who don't make it. So Alex Morgan specifically is in a is in a tricky situation because I think she is literally taking up the mantle uh, that Rapino took up at the 2023 World Cup and Carly Lloyd in 2019. Um, and there's no problem with that. There there is there is value in those roles. And I am more excited though about Fischel coming off the bench and looking the way she did. Savannah DeMello stepping in and being this is this is the one decision that I thought that had Twyla's fingerprints on it. You get Savannah DeMello the keys as the attacking midfielder ahead of Lindsay Horan and Emily Sonnet. It gave her so much room to work in the middle. And she's so great on the half turn, unlike many other people with the, I would say, Savannah DeMello and Rose Lavelle, the only two U.S. attacking midfielders who can play on the half turn and find your wingers. And Sophia Smith and Trinity Rodman have the pace to be able to play in behind the defense. And look, Columbia is a super quick team, especially in recovery, especially in defense. So I have to say I was impressed by their way to mitigate the risks that the U.S. provided them. But Savannah DeMello, for me, stuck out as one that if you give her the keys in the midfield, she can be impactful. And yeah, just overall, the the influx of youth in this game was very much welcomed. Uh, I know I highlighted Alyssa Thompson, who didn't get on the score sheet, but was cooking late in that second half. Absolute menace for the entire back line. I think she had Arias subbed off at the right back position just for her coming in. So I, I was very impressed. Um, in the second, later parts of the second match, um, it's still not perfect. It, there's still so much that needs to be done, but I think the mechanics were much better. I think the player selection, I think making risks and in, in, in choosing who not to uh, who not to rely on in certain areas mm-hmm. has, has been uh, a welcome surprise from that game. I completely agree. And then Savannah DeMello is a really interesting case because I I didn't dislike her because of the role that she had in the World Cup, but I was definitely like I was like why is she it was, starting? It was a little too it was too much at that time and she didn't have the the uh, the attacking um freedom that she did in this game against Colombia, which is where she's at her best is when she's she's at the ball going towards the defense. Too many times she was pigeonholed into being a ball winner at the World Cup and I didn't love that. Yeah, and I watched uh, the Snacks podcast with Lynn Williams and Sam Mewis, and, and Savannah DeMello was on the podcast and mentioned that, like, she was so confused as to why she was starting in the World Cup. Like, there, it's just another player in the list of uh, just World Cup players who have just, come out since saying, like... Just communicate with your players, Like, I don't know what man. I was doing. <laughs> like, and that, be that, clear. Right. It, at the World Cup, I feel like it should just be... Communication should be at an all-time high when you're on the world stage, and I, I, it's like it feels stupid saying that out loud because that should feel like obvious. Yeah. But it wasn't, and I liked Savannah Demello a lot more after that interview because me and her share feelings of like we both didn't know why she was like getting <laughs> such a big role. Right. I think that was collective. I think everybody felt that, and it's not fair to Savannah Demello, and I think that just points out. Look, not to look back on Vlatko's era and and say more bad things about it. Enough has been said. But if you're not clearly communicating your players' roles to them, they're not going to know what they're doing out on the pitch. And that's not good recipe for success in a seven-match tournament 
where you need to win at least two of three games in the group to get out, or at least one and get draws, and then you need to go into the knockouts and win every match. You can't do that if players, nine out of 11 players, are only, two or three maybe in each game, aren't sure of what their role is, aren't sure where they fit in compared to the other 23 players. I think that that, that could be just communicating at, at a basic level could rectify some of the issues the U.S. had in the past. It's nice to see even if Twyla Kilgore is not an actual candidate moving forward, and I don't really think she should be, it's nice to see that someone involved with the U.S. women's <laughs> national team has these ideas and is willing to impart them on the players, playing to their own strengths. Sophia Smith playing off the side of the striker, let's see a little more of that. I like her in those roles. That's that's where she's effective. So Savannah DeMello being another one of those players to, uh, to, benef- to be the benefactor of that, that's great. I didn't love seeing Crystal Dunn at left back again, but what are you going to do? Yeah, can't have everything. Um, And one thing that it's kind of an opinion I developed late as of late. And I don't I don't like that. I think this way, but it's just for me, it's it's just true. You look at the U.S. Women's National Team in the early 2000s coming up through, I would say, up until 2019, 2020. The way that the U.S. Women's National Teams were made were through like U-17s, U-21s. Like I read this article and the way they put it was that like, the United States women's national team was a club team, mm-hmm. essentially. They were together some like crazy stat of like 200 days out of the 365. Like they consistently were together. And now under Vladko and Anoski, it feels like the U.S. women's national team is more of like an NWSL all-star team. And that clearly, I just don't think that works because that's the reason U.S. women's national team was so good is because they set themselves apart by having such an intense program with U.S. soccer. And we've kind of backtracked from that. And as much as I love the National Women's Soccer League, I want to go back to that phase of like, okay, Tobin Heath was on the U-17s, and she never left the team since then. Yeah. And, and that- the, the residency program of, of U.S. soccer. Um, if Is there anything more you wanted to say on no, that? No, no, you're good. Well, I, I think it's this is, again, such an interesting thing to bring up. So thank you for that. <laughs> Because the NWSL very much needs to exist. You need to have a thriving club competition in your country in order to be successful in the world's game now. It, they cannot go back to having that residency system simply because the prevalence of clubs in this world now. Yep. If they did that, unfortunately, I feel like they would fall behind the growth in rapid, rapid player development that we're seeing in Europe, which is entirely attributed to the growth of academies in Spain, uh, especially France, uh, I would put that up there, and I would say I would put Germany and England also in that in that category, uh, as well as countries like Norway who have been successful on the world stage before. The reason why it's different for the U.S. is because they still haven't gotten that academy infrastructure yet. It needs to be replaced. You need to be able to have it both ways. The reason the residency system was so powerful for the women compared to the rest of the world is the men did it too. At IMG in Bradenton, Florida, that's where they, that's the U.S. soccer's home base for so many years. It's where Landon Donovan and Demarcus Beasley came through the ranks before going to the quarterfinals in 2002. It's where the women did everything before '99 and, and and 2015. So you, you you have to understand that it worked before, largely because there was not great academy infrastructure in Europe. And now that that exists, and the U.S. is redirecting their strategy to more clubs, which is consistent with the rest of the world and that's really what they should be doing because the NWSL needs to be strong and it could get even stronger it's already 
I would put it among two or three top leagues in the world, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing. And it needs to keep that status up. But you need to be able to implement the youth ranks to the degree that we had for the U.S. women's national team. Imagine that residency program. But now there's 12 of them for every NWSL team. Wow. I mean, that's it. That's what's happening in Europe right now. And that's why Sweden is is is. Going at on to the next round at the behest of the U.S. That's why the <laughs> Netherlands are are uh, a force to be reckoned with. That's why Spain changed everything this 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 past summer. So I think you're right to have pointed out that moment as a change, and the U.S. are currently inching towards the 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 uh, European model, but they have to start taking bigger bigger steps if they want to have that success that they saw with the residency program with players like Tobin Heath. It's absolute. That's a perfect observation to be making about the current transition in U.S. women's soccer, and it's why it's been tough for guys like Vlako Andonovsky to then say we have to turn the page on these older players and integrate youth ones. When his he's a European background guy. I know he has NWSL experience too. He's coming from a club background, club style European background. He's not going to be as good at identifying American players the mm-hmm. American way. Um, and I again, I point to U.S. soccer making a bad hire in that case. Um, and I think that they have they have a chance to now get it right ahead of t- uh, 2027. So and ahead of the Olympics. So I think that that should be their main goal is finding someone who can bridge that divide between what it means to be American and the success of European youth academies and the massive, massive development of of women's leagues in Europe, because they are absolutely crushing the U.S. in growth right now. They're not better than the NWSL, but they are growing at a much, much faster pace. And I think the prevalence of college sports kind of complicates this yep. as well. because Very much so. It's College soccer is yep. weird. It's weird, man. Because it's so... It's, it's, a, it's a very viable option of getting to the NWSL. And this is all very... The whole concept of this whole thing is all very, very new. Because before, you know, the NWSL didn't really have, like, the, the idea of like free agents and drafts and all of this stuff is is still somewhat new because the NWSL is somewhat new mm-hmm. still. In, in England and stuff, it's like you're not going to university to get noticed for soccer. Right. In U.S., you can, and a lot of people do. So it, it, you have to change the mentality of how to develop players at a very foundation level and on different levels of that foundation like you have to switch the mindset of like several different aspects to make an nwsl academy work and that that's just something they didn't have to go through with england yeah and and this is not me saying that college soccer needs to be abandoned altogether it still very much has a place and it's a good thing that it does in developing uh women's soccer players especially um and think you think back to the last 20 years that was the main path to pro that was the main path to reaching the women's national team. It was you would be play for the U.S. youth teams at the residency, and you'd go to college, and then you'd turn pro, and then you'd you'd step right into the national team. And that was a really good system for a while, but only because it wasn't getting a lot of competition from more superior systems outside of the U.S. And now that that has kind of changed, I think there's this this should be that should be the focal point of of the strategy for women's soccer development in the u.s is is to make that change but also still foster development at the college ranks because i don't know if you saw even last night the the georgia at oh my god the sec semifinal i think um the went three it was four three they scored in the second overtime with 27 seconds left to win it and it was a spectacular goal that that, that era sorry that realm excuse me of 
soccer, both for the men and women in this country, very much needs to exist mm -hmm. because players still make their way pro in both MLS and NWSL straight out of college and hit the ground running. There's examples every year, and it's awesome. People crap on college soccer, and I always point to the few examples every year and say, this guy, this guy, this girl, this girl. You can't, you can't write it off, and they shouldn't, but they do need to make that transition. And if that, if that means that college soccer is no longer going to be as, um, as great of a choice, I, I, I don't see that being the case because around the world, people still recognize the U.S. as a mecca for women's soccer. And if you look at just Fordham's team alone, how many international players play for that team? And that's growing now in the men's college soccer uh, realm, too, because we're just becoming a more soccer-happy nation. I think accepting more players internationally is something that wasn't necessarily a thing in college sports previously, and soccer is the most international sport in the world, mm -hmm. and we're bringing in more people at the college ranks, and that's only going to make college soccer better, too. So while we funnel more attention into the youth uh, ranks and the academies for the NWSL teams and some of the USL women's teams too, which are making great strides, by the way, mm -hmm. in making academies. The USL in general is doing so well as a second division uh, status. Get all, all, the, all the money that MLS and NWSL spends to, to crash down on the USL. The USL does so, such good work, so good for them. And I, I, I look, I think that they're going to make some of these changes in the right direction. I think we're going to see an influx of youth players like never before over the next 10 years in both men's and women's soccer in this country. And I think when the women do it, it's going to be particularly impactful because instead of whereas the men are going to go from average to slightly above average, mm -hmm. the women are going to go back from slightly above average to elite status in the world yeah. again. And I think when it happens, it's going to be one of the greater celebrations we've had in women's soccer. Because that fifth World Cup is going to hit like crack. And that's the part that it's hard to tell fans this, but, you know, the awful experience that we've had in the it's Olympics. It's going to make it better. It's going to make it so much sweeter <laughs> when we're back, when we get that fifth star on our jersey. It helps with appreciating things to be in a, in an era where things aren't going well. Because it's yeah. just, you know, 2019, like, it was amazing, but mm -hmm. it wasn't like, it was more like, Okay, I can I can exhale now. Yeah. Like we won. It's not wasn't like a right. celebration. Yeah, I, you're right. I think that was more of a let's survive through this World yeah. Cup. And 2015 was let's show everybody what we're made of. Mm -hmm. I yeah, that's a good point too. Um, I think that that kind of uh, we should have maybe done a little bit of a better job looking back, reflecting <laughs> on 2019, and being like, okay, let's start making change now. And we didn't Got really do that. Got yeah, complacent. that's all right. Um, you learn from that. Exactly. The, the one last thing I want to say before we move over just to you know our last conversation about the next coach, University of Memphis women's soccer. I have to plug some Memphis love when I can because they are killing it. They're ranked in the top 10 in women's soccer. They currently they won uh, yesterday to advance to the American Athletic Conference finals. You know, whether they win or lose, I'm 100% sure they're making the NCAA tournament. And then if you if you remember, those who are fans of women's college soccer last year, unranked only got into the tournament because they won the cha the AAC championship they they made a Cinderella run to the sweet 16 and have only built on that it actually went from being a Cinderella team to a legitimate contender and you, you think about basketball what, what I guess I watch more of is like if you see a Cinderella team like St. Peter's UMBC whatever like they're a Cinderella yeah. team and then they like kind of escape back into like the unknown of like right. Memphis is soccer is different soccer is different and specifically this Memphis women's soccer team has really taken last year as like a, a great stepping stool to to where they are now so good luck in the in the championship 
University of Memphis women's soccer. I had to give a shout out. But going back to U.S. soccer, seemingly down to three candidates, three public candidates. There could be more. Who knows? But Tony Gustafson from Australia, Laura Harvey from Oil Rain, and then the Juventus women's coach. Montemurro. Indeed. Couldn't have, could not have said it better. Yeah, <laughs> um, where, so where do, we, where do we sit on that? I Look, I, I think what Tony Gustafson did with Australia was impressive. I mm-hmm. definitely made that team better than the sum of its parts. So he gets points for that. But <laughs> as a U.S. women's national team assistant of yesteryear, I wonder if that's not the greatest idea. I want fresh perspective. I want new eyes in the program. And that's not me saying that Tony Gustafson doesn't bring a fresh perspective whatsoever. I'd have to look more into his tactical identity to, to really be able to pull apart what he, would make him different from a Vlako Andonovsky, from a Jill Ellis. Um, Joe Montemurro, I, I would love to actually have a European club influence come in and, and coach the team. Not so much so to... Uh, ostracize the college soccer community i still very much believe that that james burley college soccer hater look I, I was like i was gonna go follow you up uh, with memphis and talk about uc irvine's run to the tournament uh yeah. in 2020 or the covid yeah. year the same year marshall did it and now look at both their programs yeah. the men's Mar- uh, marshall program one of the best in the nation uc irvine women's program one of the best in the nation so very much uh one good season in college soccer can change everything, everything and make that program a big deal moving forward. Laura Harvey, I guess, is I guess is the favorite. She has I to hope be she is. just because of the reputation she has within NWSL and within uh, U.S. women's soccer. And I wouldn't be I wouldn't be opposed to her coming in because because of that. I think that that's the sort of thing that Vladko didn't really have, and Jill Ellis commanded that sort of respect. And if we have a strong figure that can communicate clearly with their players. I think that's the biggest thing, number one. Always have to communicate clearly with the players who you're working with. And I think of the, of the three of these candidates, Laura Harvey speaks to me the most that, that she would solve that issue. But there's other issues. And I think Tony Gustafson making Australia better than the sum of their parts, beating Brazil in 2019 at that World Cup, you know, I, 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 um, I really think that there's, uh, there's, there's some difficult discussions that, Matt Crocker is going to have to have as the sporting director of U.S. soccer. Absolutely. And for for me, when you look at the issues of, of last year uh, with the World Cup, or I guess this year, I, based on what players have said, it's just general, as you said, communication, but also just not having a relationship yeah. with their coach whatsoever. Like, you, you need, coaches need to have a bit of confidentiality with, with how they're thinking and stuff, but they also need to be at least somewhat transparent about yeah. you know mm-hmm. what they're thinking. You it, it's unhealthy as a player to have to guess, you know, something as big as the reason why certain players are starting. Like that is yeah. if if they don't know that, it, it trickles down only from there. It's I, it's not even it's not even just think just think about it. Put yourself in that player's shoes. You're you Savannah DeMello specifically. No caps prior to that World Cup. And then she draws into World the Cup. starting 11. And has not been told why. That's crazy. That's crazy to me. I I can't imagine ever being put into a situation where the coach did not clearly... Like, I've played sports. Never at that high of a level, obviously. And it was always made... Whenever I stepped into a high school soccer game, it was always made very clear what my coach expected from me. 
but still gave me the freedom to go play and do my own thing right. because that's what a good coach does. And I'm not saying my high school coach should go and coach the women's national team. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Just making the point I'm, that like even at that level. I'm saying that that is that is the the base level of thing that you need to be able to do is to be clear with the players who are going to perform because the coaches don't perform. The coaches just have ideas. They have ideas and they say things. And if you're not even doing that, you're not even saying things to your players and they don't have the ideas that you want to express through them, through your players, then they're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to play the way that they want to play either because it's going to be all up here. I don't know how you could ever play without knowing whether or not your coach is going to approve of (laughs) the way you play. Like, is that good? I don't know. You won't tell me. Um, and look, I'm not saying that they never talked. I'm not saying that he never had a conversation with her about any of this. But if there's any any moment in which she is second guessing her role, then that is on the coach because that is. And if it weren't a trend, maybe it could be on here. But we very much know it's a trend. we knew we knew before, and we know more than ever now that that was a pretty big trend for just about anybody on that team who wasn't a locked in starter day in day out. For with the exception of. Lindsey Horan, Naomi Gurma, um, Alyssa Nair, and Alex Morgan, I would say that a lot of those players played confused about their positions on that team. And I don't want to keep looking back and talking <laughs> about that, but that's that's the issues at hand that they need to change. That that's what has to be that's what they have to get right. And for all of those points that you just said, it, it, for in my head, when you're when you're saying all of these issues that are, are so clear that players have complained about there, there's no one who embodies transparency and player relationships more than Laura Harvey. Absolutely. So, for me, it's just it's so obvious. It should have been should have been the manager in 2019 or after Jill Ellis going into 2020. She should be the manager right now. If I wouldn't be heartbroken with either of these other two candidates, but it just it just seems too perfect. It seems like such a perfect match. So many of these players already have relationships with her. So I, I was going to ask about two things. One, do you think it's important that they already have those relationships? Obviously, there's there's benefits to that. And two, are you do you think it should be a woman in charge of the team? Yeah, I said that right when we were kind of discussing what a post-Flatco world would look like before he was actually fired or before he resigned, whatever you want to call it. it. I think it should be a woman in that position. You look at Serena Wigman, who has just done an incredible job at England, I don't know like maybe it's just me being biased it would be it would mean a lot I guess to me personally if that was a woman uh at the head coaching's position if it ends up being a man it's not like I'm gonna be up in arms but preference wise like first of all I think Laura Harvey is the best candidate regardless of gender but I just think the fact that she can connect with players on that level is so important it's invaluable I, I, I I never I never would have would have uh, would have argued against Laura Harvey four years ago. I wouldn't do it mm-hmm. now, um, and I and I think she, yeah she has to be the choice. Well, we'll know soon enough. They said that they're a little ahead of U.S. Soccer said, or I guess reports have uh, announced that they're a little bit ahead of where they thought they would be. They said December was the target, but might have that head coaching decision sometime in November. But that is going to wrap up our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of All In. All In is a production of WFUV Sports.